This is the Educated Home Buyer. Everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome back to the Educated Home Buyer Podcast. We have a very important episode for you today. We're going to be talking about the future of home prices and interest rates. We have a very special guest. We are joined by Barry Habib, the CEO of MBS Highway. He is also a distinguished entrepreneur and one of the best forecasters in the mortgage and real estate industry. He doesn't just tell you what he thinks is going to happen next. He will walk us through the numbers, the facts, the economics that support what we are doing. He actually is a three-time crystal Ball Award winner by Zillow and Pulsonomics for the most accurate real estate forecasts out of 150 of the top economists in the U.S. He also is an Amazon number one best-selling author for one of his books, Money in the Streets, a playbook for finding and seizing the opportunity all around you. I think you will find that mindset very helpful as we navigate the current housing market. To prove he is truly a renaissance man and not just a mortgage and real estate expert, he is also the lead producer of Rock of Ages, the 27th longest running play on Broadway, and also the producer of Chris Angel Mind Freak at Planet Hollywood in Las Vegas. think you're going to enjoy the conversation, so settle in and get ready for some knowledge. Barry, we appreciate you taking the time to join us here and share your wisdom today. Your primary audience is mortgage and real estate professionals. Our primary audience is first-time homebuyers, people looking to enter the market, but the coincidence is they both are interested in the same things what's happening in the markets, in the economy, how is that going to impact interest rates and home prices and sales going forward? So with that, I thought we'd kick it off with one of the big questions that we get on our live show every week, which is a version of this. Should I buy now or wait and or are home prices going to crash? That's a broad one, but what are your thoughts there? Okay, that's a very good question. So um, fortunately, we've been We've been having a, a good finger on the pulse on real estate, and it's difficult for many people to understand it. Uh, just recently, there's been just a flood of negativity, including some money managers that are well-respected saying home prices are going to drop 30%, or people saying that the only way homes are affordable is if interest rates come down a lot or home prices come down a lot. So the flaw there is there is a third variable that they don't think about, and that is incomes rising. So incomes do rise, and over time, they do make up for a lot of that differential. But the main thing that people don't get is that just like any other price, it's determined by supply and demand. And currently there's just too much demand and not enough supply. It is true that the demand has narrowed because less people qualify, but even that narrowed level of demand still overwhelms the extraordinarily limited amount of supply. Think about it this way. Currently in the United States, on an annual basis, we are forming households. So a formed household is when Imagine a child that's living with parents, moves out, gets their own place. They're forming a household. Or a couple who is living together under one roof decides to separate, and now they need two places instead of one for the same couple. This is what you'd say is a formed household. We're forming over 2 million households a year. 2.07 million is the number. But at the same time, in order to... So that's your demand. So these people have a place, need a place to live. The number of construction of units coming online, and this includes either multifamily or apartments, is at 1.4 million. So you've got just an imbalance there. There's too many people on the demand side, not enough on the supply side. Now, will some of them rent? Will some of them get roommates? Yeah, all of those things will happen. But it is very unlike the period where you did have a crash 
which was the period from, let's just say, 2007 to 2010. And everybody focuses on that. You know, if you look at the last 81 years, aside from that period of time, home values have gone up 75 of those years. And one was kind of flat and down like a five-year period. But they ignore all the other good times that we've had. And it's true that home values have gone up on a compounded basis about 40% in the last three years. But look at history. We've seen periods of time where they've gone up 118% within a six-year period. And then for prices to crash, it took 59 years later, along the way having multiple periods of double-digit rises, another period of 96% within a five-year period. So to, to just focus on that and say, oh, prices went up, so they have to come down, it's incorrect thinking. Quick couple of points. One is on affordability. You know, if you took just an example and you said, okay, well, imagine a $1,000 principal and interest payment and a $4,000 income. Let's just say that $1,000 payment because rates went up or the home price went up, went up by 40% or $400 a month. Income does not have to go up 40% to offset that. That payment that you have going up by 40%, going from 1000 to 1400 if the income, which is a normal income for that would be $4,000, to offset it only has to go up. $400 or 10%. People just don't get that. So, uh, you know, another thing that people say is, oh, well, we're seeing inventory start to build. Well, inventory is very scarce, but you always get this type of a move every year. Inventory comes down March through about August, September, and then starts to rise September, October through about January, February. And there's a specific reason for that. Parents would like their children to start at the beginning of the school year. It makes sense if you remember when you were a kid, the new kid coming in had a little bit of a harder time because perhaps the curriculum was different from the school they were in, but also kids could be a little bit rough on the new person coming into the, to the classroom. Parents are cognizant of that. So they say, hey, look, I want to be in my home by the beginning of the school year. So they got to be in that home June, July, or August. So they got to start shopping March, April, May, June. So that's why we see this drawdown in inventory. And then after the school year begins, you start to see a pickup. And it tends to follow that forever, for the beginning of time, but people don't see that. You had a couple of really good points there. We talk a lot on the show about the media. If it bleeds, it leads. They're trying to scare people. They want to get eyeballs on it. So when we look back to that, you see these really good money managers, investors that they say, hey, I'm calling a 30% drop. And the problem to me, and, and tell me your thoughts on this, is they're looking at it as a pure investment. If an investment reaches this level, someone can just go and sell it. If I own a stock, it's a push of a button on my keyboard and it's sold, but I don't need to own a stock. I do need to have a roof over my head. So there's some components to it that it's a very different investment than any other investment because it is first and foremost shelter. You have to live somewhere. And um, there, there was recently a story that got a lot of play that said it will take you uh, on average 13 years to break even on your home investment. And, you know, it, it's such a terrible argument because what they assume, and they showed some parts of the country, like some areas in Cleveland was, was the one that took the longest, 22 years. And the problem is, is that they don't have any offset for where you're going to live. So that would assume if you're 30 years old, you're either going to live in a box outside in the street, or you're going to be living with parents, not paying your parents anything until you're 53 years old. So that's probably an unlikely scenario for most people. If you were to take a normal equivalent of what it would cost you to live by paying rent, well, then your break-even is much closer to one or two years, and then there's tremendous gain beyond that. So these are things that, 
as you perfectly said, Josh, the media understands that for them to gain advertising dollars, they need eyeballs. And those eyeballs don't come with feel-good stories. They come by scaring people and putting negativity. And it's an unfortunate game because people who listen to that, who have not you know, been able to see through that, thankfully, the guidance that both of you provide helps people to see that are making mistakes that are going to be extraordinarily costly. When you look at what the cost is, when you look at what the numbers is, it is literally and not figuratively in the one to two to three to $400,000 range over a period of time of seven or eight or nine years. And that is, that is real, real important for people to not make those mistakes. Barry, so the viewer that watches the show is asking the question all the time about buying now versus waiting with the idea that home prices, something's got to give, right? Because affordability sitting at all time lows. So what do you say to the person that says, hey, listen, I, I'm waiting for home prices to crash or I'm waiting for some variable to change in a dramatic fashion to make things ultimately more affordable? Because we know that rates have a bigger impact on affordability than anything else. I did a quick calculation for another video this morning, and, and you've actually poked holes in the idea that home prices have to drop 40% and or interest rates have to go back to 3% or some variation of the two to get people back in the game. So there's this idea of people waiting for the perfect scenario to buy a house. What are your thoughts when it comes to that? Well, I think it might be instructive to take a peek at just some of that by using some visuals. Yeah, absolutely. So let's let's try and address those. And I'm going to go quickly here because I feel that if, if we were to take a look at this and go quickly, the first thing that's important is understanding that home prices are not going to crash. So we'll take a look at that. It'll probably take a few minutes, but then I'd also like to address the cost of waiting and why it's not a good idea to wait. You see, people will say, well, you know, I, I think it's better off for me to wait. The problem with that is that if you wait, then, and, and you wait for a lower rate to occur, right? Forget about the prices dropping because I'm going to show you why prices won't decline. But if you wait for a lower rate, the National Association of Realtors has good statistics on this. For every 1% drop in rates, 5 million more people come to market. So if you think inventory is tight and you think there's pricing pressure now, what happens when you have a lot more potential buyers? Certainly not all of them will buy. That is just going to make inventory even more sparse but also drive prices up higher. And the thing that people don't recognize is the actual cost, which I will get into with you. But the first thing I'm going to do is take it one step at a time here. And let's address the issue of, is there going to be a crash? And let's see why with facts, not with fiction, why that happens. So I'm going to share my screen here and I'm just going to pull this up. I think one of the money managers was Jeremy Grantham, well-respected, say 30% drop in prices. So he said, and the reason is we talked about this because he says growing inventory. Well, inventory, as I explained to you, this is the last 10 years. You could see a pattern here. Every year we go up between the months of September to March, and then it comes down every single year over and over and over and over and over again. So this is a normal process. And we explained that. Well, then he says, you know, 6.5% of homes have a reduction in asking price. Well, we're, we always have markets where asking prices, some of them are reduced. Maybe some need repair or they're not in good condition. Or perhaps uh, the price was put up there too aggressive. So, yes, there will be a, always a percentage. But by the same token, if we flip the script for a second and say, okay, so you're pointing out that 6.5% have a reduction, that means that 93% 
are indeed selling at their listing price or higher. In fact, of this 93%, 32% of this total is selling above asking price. So we are not in a situation where prices are coming down. But again, the media wants to just push out the bad news. They want to compare it to 2007 crash, but there were 4 million units for sale. Today, there's just 1.1 million units for sale. But that doesn't tell the whole story. When you look at what the population was in the United States in 2007, it's 301 million people. So what's happened to population? Between then and today, we have gained 34 million more people, but inventory has dropped by 3 million, dropping from 4 million to 1 million. So this is another point as to you're getting this pricing pressure to the upside because there's simply more demand than supply, even though some people are now not qualified where they would have been with lower rates. There's still enough people that are qualified to overwhelm the amount of inventory available. But even this doesn't tell the whole story because about 35% of the units in inventory are under contract. In this big country, there's only 737,000 actual listings. So how does that compare? Here's where we are. Here's where we were before COVID. It's about half of what we were pre-COVID. And that's certainly going to put pricing pressure to the upside. So let me just show you this chart, which is the one I wanted to show you from before. Everybody worries about this period of time. But in the last 81 years, the greens up years, this was kind of flat. So you got 75 up years, one kind of flat and five down years. But people are saying, oh, well, prices went up. So that means they've got to go up. But here's the thing. If you looked here, they went up 118%. I know we went up 40% in the last three years, but 118%. If you waited for prices to come down, you had to wait 59 years for that to happen along the way. Look at this 12%. Look at this 93% gain. Look at these big gains here. Look at these big gains here. Now, so what happened here? What went wrong? It'd be instructive to see what went wrong during this five-year period of time where prices did decline significantly. So first off, I explained the inventory is very different. I explained the population is very different. But also, if you took a look at the gold bars here, that's builders putting up homes. Remember, we discussed household formations. Those are the blue bars. Notice how builders were putting up a lot more homes than people were forming households. But the reason why the market's been so strong is because the amount of households being formed is much greater than builders putting up homes. So your demand greater than supply causes prices to rise. Now we have good visibility into the future because builders can't suddenly start building an exorbitant amount of homes because it takes time to do that. You have to have the permit process. And we see these numbers remaining on a relatively low basis, 1.3, 1.4 million new construction homes. But we also know based upon population that formations will remain somewhat elevated. And of course, another factor is lending standards. Back here, you guys know this. It was, hey, fog up a mirror or do you have a pulse? You can get a mortgage, no income, no asset, no job, no down payment, and not very good credit. Well, we all know that that's changed. So the game's changed. The demographics have changed. The supply and demand has changed. Yes, it is less affordable than it was, but it's this is the, 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 the key point that I was trying to make, and this illustrates. Imagine a payment of 1000 an income of 4000 This is normal relationship. So a 40% rise in payment is $400 a month. That's a 40% rise. To offset this, to make $400 a month more, you just need a 10% rise in income. Now, look, this is an oversimplification. There's other things that come into play here, but this kind of just gives you an idea and a glimpse of where we are. Now, I'm going to show you here. Um, I'm just going to skip to it so we could discuss what we had mentioned earlier with the cost of 
waiting and why that is such an important thing for us to take a look at here. So we know that in the current environment, 29% of buyers say, say they're you know competing for offers is one of the first or second barriers to purchase. So right now, over 30% of homes are bid over ask. I showed you the chart is 32%, 2.6 offers per listed home. So if someone were looking at a home, well, this is a real case study, says why the numbers are the way they are, $630,000, they got to go 15000 above asking price to win the home. Take the emotion out of it. Mathematically, is it a good decision or not? So we have data for every marketplace. And what we could say is, look, we have to ask two questions. If you're sitting there and you're a buyer and you're in this predicament, the question you need to ask is, one, how long will it take me to break even? How long will it take for this home that's currently worth 630 to be worth 645? So what's my waiting period to break even? And then what happens in the future? So let's take a snapshot five years from now. So fortunately, you two gentlemen can answer those questions for people in every single zip code. In this particular example, it was 4.9 months because the one-year forecasted appreciation is a little over 4%. But then if you take a look at what's anticipated for the next five years, 4.28% average per year, which is very much in line with the 63-year historical. And remember, you guys have the ability to show people listening all of this for every single zip code in the country. So what does that translate to? Well, it translates to a projected value of $783,000. you are paying six forty-five. That gives you a profit of $138,000 in five years. So is it a good idea to spend $15,000 more? Maybe. Doesn't seem like it's bad, but this way you win the home. But this analysis should be done. And you could see it here. You're underwater $15,000 or 2.3% for the first 4.9 months. And then you start to climb and you start to improve. Now, the report looks something like this, and that's with 15000 What if you had to go 30000 over? Well, it would take 6.9 months. And what would happen is that you'd make, instead of 138, 123000 But at least by doing things like this, you give individuals the benefit of making that evaluation. So there's one more. I was right on the next slide. So forgive me. I should have just went to it. And that is what we were just discussing. You know, a rate above 7%, it's the best friend a buyer could have today. Because even though almost 40% say that waiting for lower rates is something that they're wanting to do, it's a mistake. Because for every 1% drop, 5 million more people become eligible for the reasons we said. So let's do the math on this. See, it's important to do math. If you're looking at an $800,000 home, you could do this in any zip code. And let's just say in this particular real case study, they were paying one and a half points. They get seven and a quarter. So I said, instead of buying today, I'll wait a year because I think rates, and we agree, we think rates are going to come down, let's say six and a quarter percent. So that seems like a logical thing to wait to get that six and a quarter. It's a big savings in monthly payment. But what they forget is that the appreciation in this market is expected to go up by 4.69% over the next year. That would make the home more expensive. And to keep the same level of down payment and mortgage the same, you'd have to borrow more money, which means you'd still be cheaper waiting a year. You'd be cheaper by $241 a month. So let's say, okay, I pay the 241 extra for a year, and then I have to pay the cost to refinance. So by buying today, instead of waiting, it's going to cost me almost $7,000 by doing so. So maybe it is smart to wait a year until we think about that appreciation and not just the appreciation, the amortization, because just 4.69% on an $800,000 home is $37,000. And you would have amortized. That's the part of your mortgage payment that's your own money. It's like a forced savings plan. So you benefit 43000 It costs you 7000 This is wise to do this now rather than waiting. And, you know, gentlemen, I know that's a little bit of a long answer to the question, but I wanted to really drill home, not just to say something, 
but to illustrate it and to show it because this is what people need to hear, not the headlines. I think that that cost of waiting is important, but Barry, another tool that uh, is available, available through your system, MBS Highway, is that rent versus own. And, and the rent versus own is an important one right now. We're in Southern California, a very high priced market. In our market, if you run the rent versus own today, it's going to scream, you should rent. It is massively cheaper to rent. But people don't do that same calculation and flash forward and say, what does it look like seven to 10 years from now? Rents have gone up historically about 1% above the rate of inflation for over 50 years. So people forget what rents looked like 15 years ago. I like to use the example, my wife moved from Washington here to California to be near me in 1997. And I think we paid $1,200 a month for a luxury apartment. We're like, this is absurd, $1,200. Those same apartments now, what are we, 26 years later, are $3,200 a month. People have a hard time adjusting for inflation. They think of their income because on a real basis, once we adjust for that inflation, income is not going up. So they feel like, hey, I'm not gonna get that benefit. But maybe talk about your perspective, what a buyer should be looking at when on a rent versus own basis, dollar for dollar, the payment I'm writing for rent versus the payment I'm writing for the mortgage can be significantly different. The best way is to just illustrate it, right? So let's just do that. So if you assume, and let's just take, this is a real case study. So let's just assume the purchase price is 500. You're going to put 10% down, take $450,000 mortgage. And the real rate that these folks got was seven and a half with one point. So let's do something most people do, guys. We're going to make it even worse to buy the home and better to rent because they think they're going to be there for nine years. But what they may not be considering is that if you buy, you know, your taxes might go up. So that's a negative for buying. And let's say they go up 2% a year. That's not going to happen every year, but from time to time, let's say it averages 2% a year. Let's also think about repairs because if you rent, your landlord would likely pay for many of the repairs. But if you buy the home, those repairs are coming out of your pocket. And then how about another big one? When it comes time to leave the property, if you're renting, you just say goodbye after nine years. Thank you. But if you own the property and after nine years, you'd like to sell it, Chances are you're going to have to pay all these closing fees, maybe real estate agent. So let's assume 6%, not of today's value, but of future value. So let's put all of those things in there as negatives. But let's think about what it might appreciate at. Now, in this particular market, the last 63 years has averaged 4.34%. The forecasted appreciation per year average over the next nine years is 4.2. So still very much in line. The comparable rent for this, not too far off of what you were saying, is $3,500, $3,570 a month. Now let's talk about those rental increases. So in the United States today, there's two ways to look at rental increases. One is what you're assuming on a new rent. So I'm a, I'm a person who's coming into the market from last year and starting to rent versus this year. That has been pretty flat. It's actually down about 1% from where it was a year ago. But then there's renewal rents. Okay, I'm already renting. And I am now going to renew that lease, renew that lease, renew that lease. That has been averaging in the United States 4.5% right now. So this particular market, and it's broken down as you have access to all this by every market. And you could show your clients and you could show individuals that are watching this what it would be specific to their zip code. And in this zip code, it's 5% per year. So given that, here's exactly what you said. You said it screams rent, and it does, because the rent is almost $1,000 a month cheaper. My goodness, that is real money, $1,000 a month. You should be renting, right? But your other point that you so correctly and insightfully gave was look at the purple bar. That's the rent, and watch that rent go up 
by the sixth year at just 5% per year, by the sixth year, you're paying more to rent. Now, in aggregate, on a nine-year period, it is cheaper to rent. It's cheaper to rent by $19,000. But wait a second. Here's what people forget. You see your monthly principal and interest payment that you make when you're buying a home. Well, part of that, if you break it down, 3146 is interest. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there's also principal. Principal is paying down the loan. That's like a forced savings account. It's your money. So the difference isn't as much as you think it is. It's significantly less. And notice how that principal goes up every month so that over the nine years, you've accumulated $51,000. So when you look at the two together, it's actually $32,000 more expensive to rent, $32,000 better to buy. But then wait a second, how about that 4.2% appreciation? It would probably shock, you know, Albert Einstein said the eighth wonder of the world is compound interest. And I think he's right. So you take a look at 4.2% on that $500,000 home, nine years later, you made $223,000 because it'd be worth 723 from 500 at just 4.2%. If that's shocking to you, take out your calculator and just compound that out. It's amazing. That is why homeownership is so important. Now, you got to pay, let's say, 6% maybe to sell this home at 723. So you'd lose 6% of that or 43, then your tax benefit. And here it gets a little tricky because it's complicated. There's only so much that you could deduct on the mortgage amount. And there's only so much you could deduct on taxes. So taking that into consideration. And in addition to that, we're not going to just take that as a blanket deduction. You have to compare that to what your standard deduction would be if you were renting, because you still get a benefit. It's the difference between the two that's $28,000. When you look at the overall you're $230,000 better off buying a home than renting over the nine years. And if it was 10 years, it'd be 280. If we're five years, it'd be $63,000. But this is life-changing money. Now, as you could see here, if you were to buy this home and move within two years, you'd be better off renting in this particular example. If you're going to be there longer than two years, you're certainly better off buying. But this is the correct way to evaluate it. This is the only way that it should be evaluated. And in this particular case, you could see that unlike what the media portrays, while there is a period that renting will be better, there's a lot of money to be gained if you own the home and buy the home over a period of time. Something that I like to say here on the show is that the experiment has been done over the last 70, 80, 100 years. In any given year, about 65% of American households will choose to be homeowners. Sometimes it goes down to 62, 63. Sometimes it goes up to 67, 68%. But those that are homeowners, have 40 times greater net worth and half of that net worth is in home equity. So you can say correlation doesn't equal causation. They're also older, more educated, higher earners, but 50% of it is in home equity. So you can get out a spreadsheet and you can say, well, if I save in my 401k and I get the long-term average there and I rent, so I save the monthly and I put that extra savings in there, you can absolutely nail a spreadsheet that will tell you that you can come out ahead as a renter. But in the real world, the experiment has been done. There's no comparison between the two. Yeah, Josh and Jeb, I couldn't agree more with you guys. And, and, and we value your time. So the last okay. question I'm going to ask here, when it comes to affordability, we've talked about really two pieces of the puzzle when it comes to prices and affordability some. But what about rates? You're the guru when it comes to mortgage rates. I know there's some lagging indicators out there in the economy. There are. What are your thoughts, uh, rates going forward? Okay, so over many, many decades, you know, it's our job to forecast rates. And boy, we had made some pretty outstanding calls very consistently for a long time. I did get one wrong this year in that I thought over the summer months this year that we felt rates should come down. But when we made that forecast in January, you know, as we do at the beginning of every year, 
it seemed to make sense to us that we would start to see that we thought inflation would come down and rates typically follow inflation on the longer end. You know, if you're receiving payments on a mortgage, so you're giving out a mortgage and receiving payments, if, if inflation's low, then the payment you're receiving, the buying power is well-preserved. But inflation, if it goes up, well, then your buying power is going to be eroded much more rapidly. So what you have to do is you have to increase rates to account for that. So that's why we saw rates rise as inflation rose. Now, when inflation was at 9%, we actually correctly forecasted, while nobody thought it would go to 3 and it did go to 3 in June. And that's why we said we think maybe starting May, but into June, July, we thought mortgage rates would follow suit and come down. Inflation was right. Mortgage rates were wrong. But why? Because right at that same period of time in May, we had a debt ceiling crisis. And what the Biden administration and Kevin McCarthy on the Republican side, so both parties, they had an agreement that we will take the debt ceiling, financial responsibility, throw it out the window and not worry about it until 2025 after the election. So what did that do? That said, you can spend whatever you want. And we indeed did that. It might be shocking to you, but our debt increased by an astounding $2 trillion dollars. It took this country almost 200 years to get to $2 trillion. We did it in four months, four months. Now, how do you pay for that? We don't say, okay, we're going to spend an extra $2 trillion as a country. Let's go to our piggy bank. We don't have a piggy bank. So what we did was we were then forced to sell all of these treasuries. That's how the government borrows in order to pay. So by selling all those surprising treasuries, it flooded the market with supply, like anything else, supply and demand. A lot more bond supply in order to entice people to buy our paper, we then had to offer higher rates to get people to buy it. And that's why rates surprisingly went up, but it got worse because at the same time, the credit rating agency Fitch said, hey, you're gonna do that? <laughs> you're gonna raise $2 trillion more on the debt? We're gonna actually downgrade the credit of the United States. And we all know this, if a borrower has worse credit, their rate goes up. If a country has worse credit, their rate goes up. So we didn't see those happening in January. But now what do we see going forward? We think there's a recession in the cards. And don't believe all the crap that's out there that there's no recession. We see it in the job numbers. The job numbers, they are manipulated. They are lousy data. When you take a look at the jobs that are being created, they're part-time jobs. We, we have lost one and a half million full-time jobs in the last three months and made them up with 1.8 million part-time jobs. So it looks like we gained jobs, but they're the wrong kind of jobs. Hours are being cut. We've lost a half an hour of hours worked. It doesn't seem like a lot, but across 160 million laborers, that's 2 million job loss equivalent. So we're seeing cracks. The unemployment rate has risen from 3.4 to 3.9%. Throughout history, when that happens, a half a percent rise, you are on the doorstep of a recession. Why is recession important? During recessionary times, you see rates decline. We believe that 2024, we will see rates decline. How much is always hard to say, but we think that it's quite probable to see them get back under 7%. Again, should you wait? No, take advantage now, because when that happens, there will be a lot more buying activity and it should be very supportive of prices. So again, a little bit of a long answer, but I wanted to try and be thorough and give you the actual logic behind it rather than just throw out a number in time. Is it fair to say, Barry, that you think the likelihood of a downturn in the economy and a recession will outweigh that increased supply? Because the supply is not going away. The market's adjusted to it now, but that increased supply of treasury borrowing is going to still be there. 
You're 100% right. And Josh, I agree with you. So perhaps we would see under normal circumstances, a more pronounced downward move. We may not see as far a downward move because that that supply will be still coming to market. However, that slowdown should result in the number one culprit here, the Fed, who has gone too fast, too far, looking at old data. <clears throat> I know we haven't talked about that. We could do a whole show on the Fed and the missteps. Remember, Jerome Powell is a lawyer. He is not a trained economist. Remember that Governor Michelle Bowen is calling for, Bowman's calling for more hikes. She's a lawyer, not an economist. So these folks don't really have a good handle on this. And yet um, they have gone, they, they do these boom bust cycles and we've all experienced them. I think the Fed will have to start to backpedal once they see the job market struggle and have difficulty and it becomes clearly evident to them. And by them lowering rates on the Fed fund side, you will see interest rates decline. And borrowing costs go down even for the federal government too, even with the added support. No, good stuff, Barry. So a lot of questions still out there that we have for you, but not enough time out here. So maybe we can do an episode in the future where we cover this in more detail, talk about the Fed. But in the meantime, those that are watching the show want to learn more about Barry, want to follow Barry on this journey. I am Barry Habib at Instagram. We'll link to it in the show notes below. Also, when it comes to buying a home in this market, mindset is really everything. We just did an episode on it a couple episodes ago where we talk about if you're looking to buy in this market, you need to change your philosophy, right? Change your philosophy, change your life. Barry's got a book on it, Money in the Streets, where Barry does talk about mindset and everything going on there. So we'll link to that in the show notes below. Barry, thank you a lot. I know your time's very valuable and we appreciate you being here. Oh, it's a privilege being on with you, gentlemen. You do such a great job. You do so much good for our industry. So thank you. All right. Till next time, guys. Buy right, borrow smart, build wealth. Adios. Amigos. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube and make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.